You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Hey, Brandon, it's good to have you on, man. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. So, yeah, would you just give a quick background story of you know yourself and your work a little bit so the audience can uh, get to know you? Sure. So uh, I'm Director of Engineering at Investment. We're a, a financial company based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so I started out at investment in 2014 as a software engineer and have uh, sort of grown with the team here and am now director of engineering. I run our application development, so web apps, um, single page applications. We're really building sort of a, a, a giant analytics suite for the institutional investor market. Mm. Um, we're, we're part of the, the larger NASDAQ organization and uh, we're, we're excited to be on the show. Great, man. Thanks for joining. Yeah, fintech is a huge area. I mean, gosh, so much investment going on in there. And then the institutional is a whole different beast. So, <laughs> yeah, so much going on in the space. And you talked a little bit off mic about how, you know, you guys have had to like 4X your engineering team over just the same as many years. Um, you know, talk to some of the scaling issues. I mean, that's the thing that a lot of our listeners you know, have to think about and, and are, are going through. There's many different dimensions of that. So, you know, what's just tell a story a little bit on that. Sure. So back when I joined in 2014, I was one of maybe 15 developers. You know, we were not immature, but we didn't have quite the amount of infrastructure and, and sort of roles in place necessary to grow to a, a 60 plus engineering team. So a, a, as we've grown, those roles have kind of found their way naturally, um, as well as our tooling. So, you know, we, we used to use something called CCNet, for example, a really old CI/CD pipeline that no one probably even knows what that is. Um, Mercurial for, for source control, you know, so we, over time migrated to Git and then team city and eventually Jenkins, um, just better tooling to support more hands on keyboard, more code check-ins, uh, getting code to production more efficiently. Uh, we didn't want sort of human process to be a bottleneck. Um, we've also sort of changed up our scrum team. So it used to be sort of maybe not even your traditional scrum, less process. Um, we've added process, not for the sake of process, but, you know, for, for organization and clarity. Um, so where we used to maybe have two teams of seven or eight, we've scaled out into 10 teams of four to five, for example. Um, so we, we call them scrumlets. They're sort of our little scrums. Um, they come with an embedded product owner that manages your backlog. Uh, each team is completely self-sufficient and, and, and independent. So they can work in and deploy that code of production as, as they see fit. Um, they answer to themselves now as opposed to the organization and everyone's really sort of free to, to self-manage. Um, and that's sort of really allowed us to scale because 
if each team can operate independently, we can bring a new team online and, you know, as long as they have the resources that they need to operate, then they're free to do so. So how do you know when and around what to bring on a new team? Is that driven? Like, I guess the, the product function, the product owners are communicating out to the, the business side then on a regular basis. Sure. So yeah, we, we have sort of a, a typical investment cycle where we bring on additional teams every year. Um, and those teams come on to work on our, our newest initiatives usually. Um, so every year, say we add two or three teams, we go through sort of a, a traditional ROI process to determine what projects are, are the highest for revenue generation. Um, and then those will trickle down to the teams and, and determine which team is working on what. And if we have more money to invest than we have teams, then we'll bring on a new team to tackle that project. Good problems to have, right? So. Great problems to have. Yeah. <laughs> Talk so about that, um, that's interesting. Talk about that ROI process. You know, I, I love hearing that because I don't know that a lot of engineering teams are that directly hooked up to the revenue side, you know, so that that's really interesting to hear about. Maybe uh, some advice on, on what that looks like and then how you distill that into, okay, we actually should build, you know, X, Y, or Z. Sure. Yeah. So our, our product and revenue organization is very, very good at sort of analyzing what the value prop is of a certain project. And an important piece of understanding the value prop of what we're building is how much is it going to cost us? Uh, so the, the tech work is actually very tapped into that ROI process. So the product team will bring an idea to the table and the engineering team is responsible for saying it's going to cost us X dollars to produce. And, and from those two artifacts, we can sort of produce a, a projected revenue value of it. Um, so that allows us to sort of stack rank projects and say, well, the engineering team thinks this one's going to take 12 months and this one's going to take nine months. If the projected revenue is the same, then you should probably build the nine month project because it, it's going to be cheaper at the end of the day. And how do you know that um, the engineering estimates are right? You know, that's it, the notoriously difficult piece of software is is trying to make an estimate of what something's going to cost. Sure. Yeah. So we, we do estimates at different levels. Um, at, at the highest level, we use a methodology called Y-Band Delphi. It's very high level, but it's sort of a, a blind estimate where you get multiple subject matter experts in a room. They spit out a number without any visibility to the other person's number. And then we talk, we discuss why did you say six months, but I said nine months. And we sort of iterate until we get down to a standard deviation we're comfortable with. So that's at sort of the high level. Um, but then as we get projects landed onto Scrum teams and as we iterate um, down into our sprint iterations, we'll actually do story points and we'll try to project out the timeline of our project. Um, and we, we try to keep get ahead of it, right? So if, if we see a project that we thought was going to take nine months is now projecting at 19 months, we know, okay, is it really something we should be investing in? Should we continue to invest in it or should we, you know, we got to be comfortable also killing projects if, if they're going to cost us one month. Yeah. So you're really, you're really looking at the results of the scrum process as a, an ongoing burnout or something of that nature to, to know if, you're on track and I'm guessing that you do some kind of uh, a rigorous, you know, sort of retro type of, of deal to figure out like, Hey, how do we make the system better so that next est estimations actually come out? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's a constant recalibration to make sure we're on, we're on track with what our assumptions are. Um, but then you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, when the project does shift, we got to look back and say, were our assumptions correct, not only on the, the estimate side, but on the revenue side? Um, and if they weren't, what can we do next time to make it better? You know, where did we miss costs? Where did costs creep in that we didn't account for? Um, and what assumptions did we make on the revenue side that maybe weren't valid that we could improve on? 
So does the whole organization adhere to the Scrum context? Because you would have, on the revenue side, then you would have expanded past what what engineering and product can do. Uh, is there a lot of buy-in then to that that whole process throughout the org? Yeah, so we, we like to think of ourselves as a tech org through and through. So um, while other parts of the organization might not do Scrum, they are very comfortable with the teams that do do it, and they are... are comfortable interfacing with Scrum teams. So um, the, the tech org is kind of the heart of the organization. And we, we're, we call our total umbrella the offerings organization, so products and technology sort of together. Um, and since the tech org works in Scrums, the product team sort of works alongside us in Scrums, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, the, the whole org is, is very familiar with the Scrum process and, and sort of scheduling and, and working around that. Do you think the discipline around the the data and uh, you know calculations and sort of precision there does that come out of being a, a financial org? Because you don't you don't see it a, a whole lot, and you'd think that engineering would be very disciplined in that way. But I, I can't say that I talk to a lot of organizations that actually do all that data stuff the right way. Sure. So we're 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 a data product at the end of the day. So we are a very data driven organization. Um, our marketing team is even very data-driven. Every corner of the organization is just very data-focused. A lot of the decisions we make are based on data. You know, we try to make it very factually based. Um, so that does come some from technology, but just sort of the business that we're in definitely feeds into that a lot, and uh, I think is is a huge advantage for us. So talk about culture there, like you know. So one thing about a data-driven organization is that it's awesome and you kind of get like this precision level, you know, performance out of it. And, and the other side is that if we get too data driven, you know, there are cultural implications where, you know, you can kind of derive or get down to this sort of like every, no one's thinking, you know, no one yeah, is, yeah. Uh, the human side is, is missing there. How do you make that balance? Sure. So there's definitely some analysis paralysis as, as you could call it. Um, especially on the engineering side, you know, we can get down in the details and forget to see sort of the goal while we're trying to figure out the details. Um, and, it, and it does take a mixture of personalities to kind of prevent that. And that's something we look for in hiring. We don't want to hire 100% of people that are just data driven. You know, we need the people that are comfortable making decisions with minimal data available. And then just the data driven people to fact check them and, and get their back. Um, so we're, we're a data driven organization, but we have very diverse personalities. Um, which sort of keeps us on track. Um, culturally, though, the, the data-driven aspect keeps it kind of interesting. I'll give you an example. Uh, baseball season just started, and we had fantasy baseball draft last week, and the people that were participating showed up to fantasy baseball draft with spreadsheets of their own data and rankings for fantasy baseball. Um, so the data-driven organization shows its, shows its head in uh, interesting ways. <laughs> you got a bunch of Billy Beans there, huh? Yes, yeah. very much so. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. So from a leadership perspective, you know, how have you guys uh, leveled out, you know, your your org? So, you know, I know your director and, you know, you think about like some organizations do, you know, hey, everybody still needs to commit code or sometimes the leadership, you know, is sort of only doing code reviews and more strategy and architecture. You know, how does that play out when you're using the, the scrumlets, which I love that word. I haven't heard that before. Sure. So. Uh, under the directors, we have engineering managers. Engineering managers usually work with multiple Scrum teams. Um, committing code is not in the manager's job description, but it is a very active part of their job. 
Um, even if it's not under their own name, the commits are sitting alongside their engineers at their desk pair programming and helping them. Um, at the director and architect level, we do still commit code, but it is more um, looking for opportunities to fill in gaps or help teams. It's certainly, I'm not embedded in a scrum team, you know, I'm not pulling tickets from a backlog, but if there's sort of a side project that will help with efficiency of the team, or I need to move a project across the finish line, you know, I, I will still jump in and get, get my hands dirty. Um, our whole leadership team comes from a software engineering background. You know, none of our leaders are just people managers or just are just leaders from a different walk of life. Uh, we all started as, as software engineers, so we're all very comfortable falling back to that. Um, and and we enjoy to sometimes, of course. Yeah, yeah, I know that's uh, a lot of leadership types, you know, sort of lament that they don't get to do code anymore. So I just like to dig into that and see, you know, how you make the balance. And um, I'm curious, so there's no ROI calculation, uh, at least on the revenue side, when you're looking at tooling and you're looking at greater dev efficiency and, you know, shipping faster and, and CICD and all those things. How do you fit that into your, your process? There must be some kind of, a, you know, a expense budget or, or something along that line to say like, well, I've got to go two hops from ROI and certainly two or three hops from revenue to start to say I should invest in tooling and even technical debt remediation. How do you fit that into the equation? Sure. So we do have a separate technology budget that we, we fight very hard to protect and the organization is pretty good about that because they, they understand the importance of developer efficiency. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's hard to, to calculate an ROI for using Jenkins over Team City. Um, but it's actually pretty quantifiable. So if if Jenkins is going down or we're having scalability issues and we think if we cut over to something different, that those issues are going to go away, we can actually calculate that the average developer is going to save 15 minutes a week or something. You know, and you can extrapolate that out to a real dollar value and say, well, if it's not costing us more than our savings, then it's a net positive gain. Um Things like Jira, you know, we used to use fog bugs. Uh, moving over to Jira has allowed us to scale the organization. So getting rid of those bottlenecks, moving things to hosted managed providers. Um, we used to have to manage our own infrastructure for our tooling, getting more things off our plate, uh, just less maintenance time for us. Um, those things are quantifiable at the end of the day, but we don't always have to quantify them just because sort of the, it's, it's pretty clear what the value is most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And how much of that feedback comes back from the developers? Like, how do you figure out your bottlenecks? Is that is that an automated process or is there a qualitative nature to that? Sure. So we do have metrics around sort of our build process and our build pipelines. Um, we even have metrics around code commits that resulted in a failed build and things like that. So we're, we're pretty quantitative, but at the end of the day, our developers are very sort of open and, and they're good at giving feedback and we're a very transparent organization. So if there's a bottleneck and people are feeling pain, they have no problem voicing it and we'll know about it pretty quickly. And we encourage that, you know, if there's something in your way that you can't do your job, the quickest way to remove it is to, to let somebody know or to remove it yourself. So um, we typically don't want to wait for the data to tell us we have a problem in that scenario. We'd, we'd rather know about it, you know, as soon as it becomes an issue. And how with the you know self-managing team sounds like an awesome concept until so you kind of think like, hey, how do you, you also have to manage some standards, right? Like not everybody gets to build their own, you know, deploy pipeline and, and, and build pipeline. So how, how do you draw the lines between like self-managing or, you know, things you can touch as a team and things you can't touch because they do need to be centralized or then, you know, the efficiency would break down? Sure. 
So a big way we solve that is with cross-cutting architects. We have architects that will span sort of large swaths of the organization and work with multiple teams. Um, they help drive standards, set standards. If the team wants to start something new or try something new, they usually work with the architect to, to sort of keep them headed in a solid direction on that. Um, we also do a ton of internal training. So we will hold our internal workshops to sort of help communicate what our standards are and sort of why we do things the way that we, we are doing them. Um, so that really helps keep alignment. So we'll do two, three-day workshops where we get a couple teams in the room at a time. We just dedicate the entire couple of days to do nothing but going heads down and writing code. Um, and everyone leaves the workshop with sort of an understanding of, okay, this is how investment does X, Y, Z. Uh, and then they can go back and sort of execute on it. So what are the biggest difficulties? You know, there's always room for improvement. Uh, all this stuff sounds amazing. So I, I wonder, you know, what keeps you up at night or, you know, what what's causing the most meetings and, and where are things bogging down now? Sure. So, I mean, that is probably the, the typical answer in, in, in a large organization is communication is always tricky. Mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as an organization scales, communication doesn't always scale with it. Um, so we're constantly looking for better ways to, you know, sort of, keep our communication channels open, make sure the important people and, and people that need to know information are getting the information in a timely fashion. Um, and that can be simple things. That can be things down to an important bug came in or, or it can be massive project decisions. Um, this communication is important top to bottom and, and from the smallest detail to the biggest project. And that's always a struggle. Um, if someone has a solution, I'd love to hear it. Or <laughs> it it's sort of a constant a constant self-improvement thing that I think a lot of organizations. Yeah, have to work no on. doubt. What's, what's your communication tooling evolution been like? Sure. So we used to be Skype for business, um, briefly moved to teams because Skype for business is being phased out. Ultimately we're on Slack now and, and it's been great for us. Um, and, and a lot of our tooling integrates nicely with Slack mm -hmm. now too. So our Jenkins pipeline can tell us what a build fails right in our Slack channel, which is, which is great. Of course you get to that place where you're kind of like, that fine line of, you know, sort of alert fatigue, right? You know, that those those Slack channels where everything hooks up to it and it goes by so fast, you're just like, you know, and you, you can't keep track of, yeah. of everything. Yeah, you, you, you kind of start to ignore them if there's too well, many. Well, you're right. Um, you start to, you get that that place where everybody just mutes the channel and then you have no alerts for, for anything, you know? So it's that constant yeah, balance. So we, we try to keep our alerts... There's no fire hose of alerts. We try to send alerts just to specific teams. Yeah. So um, very, very focused alerts. So if only four people care about this alert, only those four people <laughs> right. will get it. Uh, just avoid the fire hose. Yeah, no doubt, right? Um, so last question I'd love to ask everybody. You know, uh, you mentioned, I, I don't know, off mic, on mic, but, you know, it's just everybody's challenged now with with hiring. You know, get enough engineers, get the right engineers. Um you know, so first of all, how do you handle, you know, is it is it all co-located or hybrid or remote? Like, how do you guys do that? And, and the second part of the question is, regardless of, you know, how you do the work, uh, talk to me about your your heuristics for hiring. Like, what makes a really great engineer, you know, in your in your context? Sure. So we, we are all co-located. Everyone's here in Atlanta. Um, the, the biggest things we look for in engineers that we hire is sort of not necessarily the languages we you use or your even your experience with like tooling it's more about your ability and desire to learn your ability to come in and be an independent thinker and to engage with your team and pick up our tech stack um if you have years and years of experience in our tech stack but you're not going to come in and engage with the team and 
go out of your way to to learn, you're not going to be effective necessarily in our, our organization. And I, I think, frankly, in a lot of organizations, um, we also look for people that are just passionate about technology. Is this a job for you or is this something that, you know, as you go through life and you encounter problems, does thing, do ideas pop in your head of, oh, I could solve that with a quick program? Um, people that are truly passionate about technology and, and sort of live and breathe it are, are, of course, people that we want on our teams. And how do you interview for that stuff? Sure. So our interviews, we, we spend a lot of time just having conversations just like this one, um, getting, getting to know people, learning about their hobbies, learning about what they do like to do outside of work even. Because, um, you know, if your hobby is playing video games, but you built an app to help you play video games, that's more telling than the guy that just watches Netflix all night long. Um, <laughs> both, both are fine, but, you know, they just paint a different picture of sort of maybe what, what they're going to be like at work. Um, and then to evaluate technical skills, we actually do sort of a pair programming interview. So an engineer will come in and, and work with a couple of our engineers on a real world problem, we'll even pull an item from our backlog and, and work through it with somebody sort of hands-on, sort of th- see how they think. It's not really so much about getting it right or getting it wrong. It's sort of evaluating their thought process and their problem-solving skills and seeing what kind of questions they're going to ask. Um, what Are they going to go reach for Google and try to find answers, or are they just going to sort of give up? <laughs> sort of things like that. Yeah, Stack Overflow and Google, right? Everybody's best friend. Yeah. <laughs> So I okay. I said it was the last question, but I I also want to know, you know, um, when you when you think about you know bringing on new people, it really sounds like you guys have a have a great process together, and that you know you've been really deliberate about you know their engineering quality, and so maybe maybe just finish this up with you know some tips for orgs that kind of don't feel like they're there yet and don't speak with that level of confidence around the process that they build? Like, how do you, how do you get there? If, if someone's listening and thinking, geez, I really want to be, you know, data-driven and kind of that good. Sure. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, solicit feedback from your engineers, you know, have an open dialogue with them, ask them what's working well, what's not working well. Um, if you have senior engineers or people that you trust, don't be afraid to solicit direct feedback from them. Encourage everyone to give their peer, their peers feedback really sort of developing a culture of radical candor, if you will, and being comfortable, you know, not being too politically correct, being okay, giving people feedback, and of course, receiving it as well, um, really sort of helps an organization grow and get to where it needs to be culturally and and, and on on an efficiency level. If you're not comfortable talking about the things you don't do well, then you're not going to have a way to fix them. You got to know about them. So um, that usually starts with leadership. You know, leadership needs to be okay receiving feedback, but also giving it um, and just, yeah, absolutely. Well, Hey, Brandon, really cool to have you on, man. You guys are doing some great stuff and uh, a lot of good uh, insights today. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the frontier podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, Head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.